This is InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. Here's what's happening on this week's show. In the battle against the coronavirus, scientists around the world are working to find an effective vaccine. But the race to the finish line involves big challenges. We'll talk to an expert. Assuming that the initial clinical trial goes extremely well, that there's no problems with mass production, I think it's possible we could have a vaccine that rolls out by early next year. Then, U.S. government debt is expanding at an unprecedented rate. We face a long path to recovery once the current crisis is resolved. Here's the thing. We didn't come into this from a position of strength. And many of us have been warning for years that there's going to come a time when there's a crisis. I don't think anybody saw something like this coming. Those two stories and more are ahead on this week's show. InfoTrack begins right after this. I want my own website, but I don't know where to start. Start at Pear. Pear offers hosting plans that are perfect for someone who's just starting out. But I'm not really tech-savvy. Not to worry. Pear has WordPress hosting packages. What's WordPress? It's web software that even a beginner can use to create a beautiful website. So where do I start? Pear.com? Pear.com. As in, we make a perfect pair. Pear Network's web hosting. Tell your friends. InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. Here's your host, Chris Whitting. Scientists and researchers worldwide are racing to find a vaccine in the fight against COVID-19. What challenges do they face? And when can we realistically expect results? InfoTrack's Gina Tedesco has the story. Gina? Thanks, Chris. Joining us now is Dr. Paul Offit, co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine and a member of the Food and Drug Administration's Advisory Committee. He is professor of pediatrics at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Doctor, I'm going to ask you to play odds maker here of sorts. Can you give us your sense by percentage? What is the chance that we would have a vaccine for COVID-19 by the end of the year? I would say less than 5%. Really? How long do you think it may take? Assuming everything works well, assuming that the initial clinical trials, which will be a small phase three trial, prospective placebo-controlled phase three trial, goes extremely well, that there's no problems with mass production, I think it's possible we could have a vaccine that rolls out by early next year. Is the biggest sticking point to developing a vaccine by year's end that we won't have enough time to know if it is safe? Well, there's several major sticking points. One, we don't know how to make this vaccine. I mean, are we going to make it by taking the virus and killing it in the same way that we made the polio vaccine or the rabies or hepatitis A vaccines? Are we going to make it by weakening it, weakening the virus, which is the way we make the measles or mumps or German measles vaccine? Are we going to make it by just taking that surface protein, that spike protein you see in, on all the media pictures and using that as a vaccine, just a single purified protein, which is the way we make the hepatitis B vaccine? Are we going to use a vectored virus, meaning take a, a weakened virus into which you clone then the gene that codes for that coronavirus surface protein, which is the way we make the Ebola vaccines? Or are we going to do something for which there's no commercially available product, and, and so-called mRNA or DNA vaccine, where you basically give the person the gene that codes for that coronavirus surface protein and then let that person's body make the protein? I mean, so you don't have really any idea 
whether any of these are going to work. That's number one. Number two is we don't really know what we're looking for yet. So in other words, when you hear companies doing so-called dose ranging trials where they give, you know, a low dose and a middle dose or high dose, and then they say, aha, you know, at the higher dose, we get an immune response. You don't know what immune response is protective yet. So you don't really know what you're looking for. The only way to know that is with a large efficacy and safety trial. And I think the kind of trials that you can do will tell you that at best, you don't have a relatively uncommon side effect. And at best, it is likely to work at least to some extent. So there's so many unknowns to this. We just got the virus a few months ago. So, you know, the typical length of time it takes to make a vaccine is about 20 years. This is much shorter. So there's a lot you don't know that you're going into this with. And many people point out that the fastest vaccine development was for the mumps, and that took four years. But, Doctor, let me ask you, doesn't the current effort in the private and public sector, particularly government investment, dwarf the efforts taken to develop previous vaccines? Right. Well, you didn't have 70 companies trying to make the mumps vaccine. It was just one company that was trying to make it. And the length of time it took from actually having the strain to having a commercial product was four years true. And there was also the burdens that were put on these companies by the FDA in the 1960s, which is when this was made, were a lot less than the burdens the FDA puts on vaccines today. But that said, there are many advantages to trying to make this vaccine. There's an enormous amount of money in this, both publicly and privately. The Gates Foundation serves an enormous pull mechanism, as does the World Health Organization, the National Institutes of Health. You have so many companies doing this. You have a lot of expertise that's doing this. And we are living now in an age of recombinant DNA technology, which wasn't true, you know, 50 years ago when we made the mumps vaccine. So there are certainly advantages, but there are many unknowns with this virus. And, you know, nature gives its secrets up slowly and occasionally with a human price. So you have to go slow, be careful, and be humble while you do this. It's hard to just say, okay, let's get this thing done in a few months. You learn as you go, and invariably that knowledge comes at some level with a price. How many potential vaccines are in clinical trials, and when might the trials conclude? It's hard to know, actually. I mean, basically, all I know about the sort of vaccine trials is what I read in the newspaper. I mean, it's kind of like science by press release, which is a little disturbing. These companies often aren't submitting this for publication, so they just put out press releases. So it's a little hard to know exactly what's going on. I would say certainly many are currently in human trials would be my guess. And it's not just going to be one vaccine. I think there'll be several vaccines that are released in the United States and many vaccines that would be released in the world. And then as time goes on, I think we'll have a much better idea of exactly what the safety profile was and exactly what the efficacy profile is. We're visiting with Dr. Paul Offit, co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine and a member of the Food and Drug Administration's advisory committee about a possible COVID-19 vaccine. Doctor, as you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci, perhaps the country's highest ranking expert on infectious diseases, once said he'd be willing to bet anything that people who recover from COVID-19 are protected against reinfection. Do you agree with that? And if so, why? I do. Based on studies that were done years ago with human coronaviruses. So there are four human coronavirus types that circulate every year in the United States. They account for about 15 to 20 percent of what we see come into our hospital, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, every year as a respiratory infection. And so there were studies done where they took people and they gave them artificially, challenged them with one of these four uh, viruses, and then a year later challenged them again with the same type of virus to answer the question, did infection protect you against moderate to severe disease associated with reinfection? infection, the answer was yes. So I think there's every reason to believe that this also will induce, probably not for decades, but I think likely for a few years. Yes. 
And on a related note, there's a new study just out that says nearly everyone who has COVID-19 produces antibodies regardless of age, sex, or severity of illness. And it also says the antibody tests used in this are 99% accurate. This is all from New York's Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai with results from 1,300 people. How significant is that? Well, the question is whether those antibodies are protective. And I think that when we do efficacy trials and you give the vaccine to people and don't give it to others, and then you see who's protected and who's not, and you'll have serum on all these people, then you'll be able to say not just that they've had an antibody response, but what's the nature of the antibody response? Presumably, what is the nature of neutralizing antibodies? What quantity of neutralizing antibodies is necessary to induce protection? Because not everybody's going to be equally protected after natural infection. So those antibody tests can be a little misleading and that people think, okay, I've got antibodies, therefore I'm protected, so I don't have to worry. Not not necessarily true. Not everybody's protected after natural infection. Doctor, for those of us who are not as schooled in this as you doctors, we have heard the term neutralizer, which sounds like something that can deactivate the COVID virus. Tell us about that, and is it a promising strategy for creating a treatment, if not a vaccine? Well, so it's from the days of polio. We would take, for example, convalescent sera from people who were infected. The thinking being then that the antibodies that that person has made can neutralize the virus. So we'll sort of inject it into people to stop, you know, that virus reproducing itself and therefore protect them from disease. Most recently, just in the last couple of days, llama antibodies have sort of come to the fore as being even better than kind of human uh, antibodies. Again, the problem is that when you're infected with this virus, the virus replicates most right at the beginning of infection, those first couple of days. Then as your immune response kicks in and you'd start to develop symptoms, viral replication decreases. So it becomes less of an important part of the disease process. So when you catch people later in the disease process, it's harder to make things like antibodies work. And it's harder to make things like antivirals work. You're much better off at the beginning of illness when virus replication is the most. And most people don't identify themselves as significantly ill right at the beginning of illness. So it's hard to make these things work well. Does it in general take less time to develop a treatment rather than a vaccine? Yes, that's certainly true. So the trick is, in this case, to know sort of how the virus plans to reproduce itself. What enzymes, for example, does it use to reproduce itself? That's the story of remdesivir. Remdesivir is directed against an enzyme that's used by the virus that helps reproduce itself, so-called RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. And so the remdesivir works against that and does offer something. It decreases the length of time that you're ill from 15 days to 11 days, although it doesn't appear to protect you from dying, which I think was disappointing about that study. Vaccines are much harder to make. No matter what strategy you use, it's much harder to make them and test them than it is to make an antiviral. More to come, I'm sure. Dr. Paul Offit, co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. For InfoTrack, I'm Gina Tedesco. Next, government debt and the road to recovery. That story, coming up. Don't go away. InfoTrack will be back right after this. 